So I have been thinking about this series that we're going to jump into today for some time. Uh, it's This is the season of Lent, and there were a, a few who were out for the Ash Wednesday service uh, at Cambridge on Wednesday, and it was a... Um, it's a funny thing with those services. They are... Uh, um, they're they're never particularly well attended, and and that's not an accusatory thing. So I'm I'm trying really hard to not make eye contact with people <laughs> when I say that. Um, it's from it's unfamiliar territory for us in a lot of ways. We don't know what to do with it. It's midweek. It's all kinds of things. Um, but since since I have been engaged in the process of observing Lent in some way, um. And specifically, starting that off with an Ash Wednesday service, it's it's just framed this time for me uh, in a unique way. Uh, the preparation, one of the things, again, you know, I, I will repeat myself uh, probably consistently in this. Uh, one of the things that's beautiful about the the Christian calendar is that it's it's a, we're invited into preparation. So in a lot of ways, the, the times of preparation are longer and more pronounced in some ways than, than the celebrations themselves, right? You have Lent, which is, uh, it, it kind of tracks along the 40-day journey with Jesus. Um, the math is a bit weird. We can talk about it later. It's not really 40 days, but that's, that's the idea. And, um, and, then we get to, and then we get to Easter. We get to the celebration. We get to the party, Right, um, you know, and similarly with with Advent, you know, or uh, with Christmas, we've got twelve days of Christmas. We've got a full month of Advent. Our preparation time is significant, and the re- the thing that I love about that is that um, it allows us to recalibrate and to encounter the moments where God is revealed in profound ways every year through the calendar, through these times where we. Mark the incarnation. You know the two big ones. There's more, but we mark the incarnation, and we and we mark the crucifixion and the resurrection. And these are these points of our year. And so, as I've been contemplating Lent and the season of Lent, I just felt really clearly that just to hone in to set our sights on the cross. Uh, and to explore that again, um, I want to ask a question, and we can have this doesn't have to be rhetorical. Would would love to have some feedback on this or some thoughts, but uh, without trying to get the right answer, uh, when you think of the timeline of God's story to today, where would we tend to put the cross? Like if somebody gave you a timeline and said, "Okay, here's the end and here's the beginning," where would we typically put the cross? That's a good answer. I'll tell you, would anyone put it in the middle? Right? That's where I would put it. I would put it in the middle. And likewise, in a lot of ways, if I think about the, my encounter with the cross, um, spiritually speaking, because I wasn't there, I think actually in that situation, I probably, I probably would, without thinking too much about it, I might, I might put it near the beginning. Hey, what do you think? What's that? Quarter of the way in. Oh, there you go. 
There's a process to get there. Yeah, it's good. Quarter of the way in. Any other answers on that one? So I, the idea that I'm compelled with here is that um, the cross is ever before us. That it's that that's the the, the, the the place that we're called to is to put it in in front of us. Um, Jesus talks about picking up our cross and following him, and he and he did that in the context of his journey towards Jerusalem, his journey to the cross. And you just know that his disciples were thinking, "Oh, this better be a metaphor," when he said it, right? You know, and, and even, I mean, I don't want to give away all the punchlines here, but, but even at the end of the book, even the end of the story, you have, you have basically creation is gathered together before the throne, and they're searching, they're searching, they're searching for who, who is worthy to, uh, to release the, the, the full iteration of the kingdom. Who's gonna open the scrolls is the language of, of the book. And they look around and, John the Revelator is, I love that term, I just, it feels bluesy. John the Revelator is, is, is filled with sorrow because he looks around and he says, no one, no one is worthy, right? But then the one who's worthy is described as a lamb who is, it's as if they've been slain. And so at the very, at, in, the, in this language of culmination, we see the reality and the impact of, of the cross in that place too. Ever, be, ever before us, something we're called to, not something we're called from. Right? Something that's, that's in our present and in our future, not so much in our, not just in our past, let's say, as followers of Jesus. And the cross is an interesting thing because it's become, for many of us, a symbol Lots of churches, you walk into it, and what do you see? You see a cross. And if you walk into a church and you don't see a cross, for some, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, that's a great time to ask the question, do you guys follow Jesus or not? Because I don't see any crosses like that. I've had that conversation with people. It's significant as a symbol, right? Um, but the reality of it is brutal. The reality of, of the cross. And so... I want to just say, uh, by way of introduction, that's really what today is, is an introduction to a journey that we're going to take together. Rachel's going to be speaking on this in a couple of weeks. Um, I want to let you know, parents, that next week is, a, is an all-in service, right? We've got our kids with us. I will not be talking about the brutality and the, and the gory stuff of the cross. We'll be talking about the cross as, a, as, a, as the, the main expression of the love of God. So just so that you know, we're still going to stay there, but we're not going to we're not going to send your kids home with nightmares, right? Um, but you know, the last couple of weeks, Brady has been unpacking the language in his language is the code, right? Which is which which when let's let's do it again. What's the code? Hmm. If then, right? If if I earn it, if I if I'm worth if I earn worth, then I can get loved, right? If I and I don't know about you guys, if you haven't listened to it, I just really strongly encourage everyone to listen to both weeks. They're online now. Um, you know, in listening to it, 
I just was recognized again how profound the the code is and how it manifests itself in my own life. By the way, there is a gathering at the Hillens on Tuesday to unpack that further. That's at what time? 8.15. And uh, we were talking about it earlier. Anyone anyone who wants to come to that can come to that. Um, So... In the, in the evening. <laughs> yeah. Um, I started to just feel the, 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 how weighty that is, right? I started to, to pay attention to my own inner script again, you know? My sense of whether or not I feel worthy, whether or not I feel qualified, whether or not I need to do something to get a little bit closer to God, right? And in some of our interactions, my thought was, like, the code is very powerful, and we, I don't think we deal with it once. I think we deal with it over and over again because it's something that is, it's, it's habitual, right? We could even, some ways, call it addictive. And my thought was, the code is so powerful that it took the freaking cross to disempower it. Like, that's the level that we're at here. Right? It took the cross to disempower it. My question is, do we even know what that means? Do we even know what it means that the cross disempowered it? That it's at the cross that all of our hopes are actually pinned, literally nailed. Right? This is, I am a creature of, I have become uh, in love with the story of the resurrection. The hope of the resurrection. I started following Jesus with an idea that I had an immortal soul that when I died was going to go to a really great place or a really terrible place. And that Jesus had made a way so that my soul could be made clean so that I would go to that really great place forever. And so it was primarily about what happened to my soul, right? And in recent years, in the last decade, say, encountered just, I would say I encountered the Bible, um, but just some people who pointed out this, the powerful promise of resurrection, bodily resurrection, of God coming and restoring all things and remaking the world. And we have these resurrected bodies, and who knows how to describe those, except that we see some kind of taste of that in the glimpse of Jesus in his resurrection form that we see. And so suddenly the promise got so wide and so big, and I just love that. I love the language of resurrection. And it's so... It just, boy, does it resonate with me. It resonates with me in such a powerful way, and, it's, and, it, and it identifies with my, um, my own wrestling with death. Right? The resurrection makes, makes I mean, we, I walked through a funeral this week with, with an old friend who passed away. And, and that's the hope. That's the hope. That's the language. Resurrection. Right? The thing is, though, is that we don't, we don't get to the resurrection apart from, apart from the crucifixion of Jesus. And, and I just want to hone in a little bit more here because we may be tempted to say that we can't get to the resurrection apart from the death of Jesus. Right? And that's true in a sense, but... When you look at the weight of the scriptures and you look at 
at how the Gospels are crafted and you look at the language of Paul, which becomes very important to us when we reflect on the cross, we realize that the language of the crucifixion, the form of Jesus on the cross being lifted up, being, being shamed, being broken, being... Uh, this is, this is not a sideline. This is not the method by which he died. It's the method by which he saved. It's not just the method by which he died. And he called us to that through that metaphor, through that image. And so it's through the cross. This is, this is what I've been reminded of as I've been preparing for this. It's through the cross that we encounter resurrection. Right? We're going to get to some scripture. There's, there's lots of it. I mean, this is, this is one of those topics that is, this is why we're doing a series, because it's really hard to drill down. We're, we're doing like a 10,000 foot view of this today. By the way, this ties in in many ways with the series that we were doing not so long ago about the creative work of God and how God has created stuff. What we talked about with that was that he creates something out of nothing. We talked about how he creates order out of the chaos that results from that flourish of life. We talked about how he, how he works through seeds and through growth to create fruit, Right? And in all of those things, we are called to participate and we're called to emulate. And I, this is what I believe, right? But the other thing that he does, his other tool, his other methodology as creator God, is that he does this death to life thing. Right? And I don't know if you've ever tried to make that happen. It don't work. Right? I mean, I've heard stories of people praying over someone who's gone, over, you know, and, and being raised again. I, I have people who I know personally who have had that experience. I choose, to, I choose to believe them. I think that they're telling the truth. The scriptures are pretty clear that that happens. But that is the work of God. Like, that is not any person doing that. Right? And it is the most profound... And I would say that it's his signature style, right? As an artist, you can walk in and you, and you see a painting and you can often, if you know anything about the painters, you can, generally speaking, you might be able to figure out if that's a Rembrandt or if that's a Van Gogh or whatever, right? They have a style. Well, I would say that, that the definitive style of creator God is this idea of killing a thing and then resurrecting it into something that's altogether new, Right? So we're still kind of within that frame, that, that, that idea of the work of God. Okay. So the cross. There's a theologian by the name of uh, Jürgen Moltmann, and uh, he has this to say about the cross of Christ. He says, he opens a book with it, the cross is not and cannot be loved. If we, think, if we think that we can love the cross, then we have reduced it into a symbol. 
We can love the work of Christ on the cross. But the ugliness of of what it carries and symbolizes is is profound. It cannot be loved. And if we and and you know I I, I really like this this image, this icon, it's the crucifix. It's interesting, it's one of the only icons of Jesus um, where his eyes are open. He's, he's taking in. And we'll talk about sometime why, why we have this up here. And Anyway, I don't want to go down there. But I love this. But you know what? This, this has very little bearing on... Like it was not, it's not ornate. The cross was not ornate. Right? We, we pretty it up. We, we pretty it up. And it, it cannot be loved. The resurrection can be loved. Um, it was a fundamentally unlovely moment. And yet, according to the structure and the narrative of all of the Gospels, it is so significant. It means so much. How many years uh, did the Gospels cover? Does anybody know? Roughly. Like the Gospel, like when you look at a Gospel, right? The Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Anyone ballpark what the time frame is? Three years. Three years. Um, so, of those three years, we have something called Holy Week, right? This is the week where Jesus shows up in Jerusalem, and he he goes through all sorts of he does all sorts of teaching, and there's trial, and he's crucified, and he's he's put into a tomb, and he's raised again. That's this final week, right? In Matthew, that accounts for one third that week of the book, right? In Mark, same thing. A third of the book is dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. In Luke, it's about a quarter of the book, which is still very substantial. And in John, it's almost half. Almost half of the Gospel of John is focused on the final week of Jesus' life. And so, you know, it's this moment that it's... The, the writers, the gospel writers, the people who were there are saying, they're shouting, this is very important. In a lot of ways, it's not unfair to say that the rest of Jesus' teaching in his life was a prelude. It was something that was pointing towards his activity, his action that came during that, that week. So as we reflect on the cross, as we, th- we reflect on that week in Philippians 2, verses 8, it says this, He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And I just want to reemphasize how significant it is that that bears mention, that that's, that, that, that that's said, right? How many of you guys, if you were invited, there was something that you knew was worth dying for, and you're making, you're wrestling through whether or not you're going to submit to that, whether or not you're going to take that on. How many of you for that, that's the big deal? Right? And there's this, the qualifying language. Not only did he submit to death, but he did it on, 
he submitted to death on, on a cross. So I want to talk about the cross for a second. Um, this was something that was very familiar to the people of the day. Uh, the, the nature of, of, the cruci- of people who were crucified, the whole, one of the points of it was that it was extremely public. You're, the children would have probably known, I'm going to get visceral here, would have known the smell of people hanging on crosses. Because it was, it was days often before they actually perished. And then most of the time they were left to be eaten. It's gross. It is absolutely despicable. It, is, it goes down in history as perhaps the worst way to take another person's life. They were naked, by the way. Right? There's some, the brutality of it is, I mean, Mel Gibson you know, tried to get at that with his film. I could only watch it once. I'm not a repeater on that one. Um, but the sheer violence of it. There was... Um, uh, where did that go? Hmm. I probably accidentally did a delete all on something here. About 70 years before the birth of Jesus, there was a, a, a Roman uprising. You guys know the movie Spartacus. Have you guys seen that? Right? So there's an uprising of slaves, and they, and they fought back, and they were basically waging war against the Roman Empire. And the general, and I'm forgetting his name. Um, yeah, I don't want to blow it. The general, when he defeated the army... They, uh, they crucified 6,000 men. And they hung them up over a 200-kilometer road between two cities. That's, that's a body over 10 feet. I'm just trying to give you a sense of what was in the imagination of people when they heard Jesus talk about the crucifixion. I'm not trying to gross you out. I'm trying to say that, that, that there's nothing lovely about this thing. Right? And this is part of the mythology and part of the strength of Rome, part of the strength of the empire. And if they wanted to make a spectacle, if they wanted to say, this thing that this person did, we don't like it, don't do it, don't you do it, they would crucify them. Right? And 70 years before this horrific incident takes place, it demonstrates the power of Rome. And that's living, I mean, that's living memory, you guys. That's the same amount of time as between us and World War II. I don't need to get into details about World War II. You guys know what I'm talking about. It was not so very far beforehand. They didn't have movies, but they did have stories. And so the, when I think about the cross, and I, like, let's, let's just think about some adjectives, right? We sing a song called The Wonderful Cross, and I really love it. And I, we're going to get to those adjectives because they matter very much to us. But, you know, let's try this. The hideous cross. The shameful cross. Have a go. The grisly cross. The real, brutal cross, yeah. 
the macabre cross. It's true. It's sick. The sick cross. The bloody cross. The disgusting cross. How about this? Ready to hold on to your seats? The godless cross. Like, of all of the places, of all of the irreligious places, the cross that Jesus chose to subject himself to was the furthest place that he could have chosen to have been from the Father. So much so that he quotes the psalm and he says, God, why aren't you here? Right? And there's, there's lots in that language. But when I, 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 I'm borrowing that from this writer, this uh, Fleming Routledge. It's a book I'm reading, and it's, if, I highly recommend it. It's called The Crucifixion. I'm only a part of the way through. I've been reading it for a while, but I just can't help but read. I like, like, I can't read this book slow enough, which is not the way I typically read. Right? It's just, you know, and she, and she talks about this, the godless cross. I just, oh my gosh. So beside that list of horrific words, Let's switch the let's let's switch here. The we've got the wonderful cross. What else do we have that we can say? The glorious cross, the redemptive cross, the saving cross. Any others? The powerful cross. But the beautiful, the beautiful cross. But didn't I just say it was completely unlovely? Yeah. We put these two lists beside each other, and the, the problem is, is that those adjectives cannot be further apart from one another. But the incredible work of Jesus actually pulls those things together, puts them side by side, Right? And he overcomes. He makes the beautiful cross overcome the macabre cross. What kind of activity, what kind of work does that? Can he eclipse that? How is that possible? It's only when we try to hold those things together and actually allow one to overwrite the brutal history of the other, that we get a sense of how profound that activity was that Jesus chose. And we need to know that. We need to know that he chose the cross. It did not happen to him. He happened to it. The scriptures are very clear about that. He, he, he set that before him, and he willingly went there. It was actually his intention. It was voluntary. And that means that it was, it was an action. It was not a consequence. So we start to, we start to get pulled into the, into the character of Jesus and the nature of what I think is the saving act of the world.
In the middle is the needed cross. Yeah. The thing is, like in our very comfortable world, like I don't need more of the cross. (laughs) I need more money. I need more comfort. Right? No, no, no. I'm, 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 you know. I'm just, I'm just saying that the, the thing that drives my decision making, right? You're right at the end of the day. Like, you know. I need air conditioning in my house. <laughs> okay. Now we're starting to resonate here. I don't need, it's so easy for me to sidestep it. It's so easy for me to have a hot time of worship and to have an encounter with God and to forget that the way to encounter him is through an invitation to this place. And not a one-time invitation, but a continual invitation. Not so that we are perpetually suffering and sad and broken people. But how, how many of you guys know, I mean, there's not many of us in the room, I guess, but there's enough, that like, do you know what loses its legs at the cross? What cannot stand at the cross? Pride. It cannot stand at the cross. It can't. It's utterly broken, utterly destroyed in that space. Right? Worship this is a whole sideline, but worship the language, the word, it actually, it actually describes not a practice of singing, but an act of getting, on, getting low, getting on the, on the ground. Pride loses its legs at the foot of the cross, and there is no argument that can stand, and there, is no, there are no words that can adequately reply to it. We are brought speechless into the presence of Jesus in this place. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased him through the folly of what we preach, the stuff I'm saying here right now, to save those who did not, who, sorry, to save those who believed. For Jews demand signs and Greeks to seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But for those who are called both Jews and Greeks, the Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. we get leveled in that place. Our religion falls away from us 
The code is a code word for religion, and Brady touched on that a little bit. Religion falls apart on the cross. All of our attempts to justify ourselves, because we look at this figure, and there were specific things that were taking place there, and there's all like libraries about theories of, of atonement, which is just what it means that, that we can stand before God without being judged in our sins, and why the blood, and, and why this language. There's, there are libraries, you guys, unpacking and exploring what it was that took place on that cross. And it is good for us to reflect and to think on those things, and we're going to touch on some of those thoughts in the series. But at the end of the day, our, my, our goal is that we come and we encounter Jesus in the place where he did the act of God, the saving act of the world, and we don't have a reply. We have all we, all we can do is let the pride come out of our knees, let all of our wisdom and all of our activity and all of our God stories and all of the things that we build up the apparatus of having powerful faith that moves mountains, all of it comes, all of it is irrelevant in that place. Because Jesus is everything. It is, what he has done is, is done. And I don't know how, why it's so easy to lose sight. I lose sight of the cross all the time. I put it in the past. And maybe I pull it out and look at it if I'm having a hard day. Right? The saving act of God. Matthew 16, verses 24 through 26 says this, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would like to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Like, I think it's so easy for us, and we're winding down here, but I want to say this. I think it is so easy for us to look for wisdom and teaching and uh, ways of being in studying the cross, looking at something like that and say, well, what, what does it mean to deny myself and to pick up my cross and to follow Jesus? Like, what, how do I do that in practice? And that's fine on some level. But really what it's meant to do is it's meant to call us to the foot of the cross and, and to be rendered speechless in that, in that place, to lose ourselves in that, right? Now, I want to I throw this one caveat out, um, and maybe we'll have to keep saying it every week as we, as we move towards Easter. Everything that we are talking about in terms of the, what Christ calls us to in, in this, following him through the cross, it's all in light of the resurrection. It's all in light of, you know, if, you, if you're seeking to gain it, if you're seeking to hold on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you're willing to lose it for my sake, you're going to find something that is extraordinary. Right? Right? But I, I think it's I think it's a I think that's a costly 
I think it's a costly exchange. It was extremely costly for Jesus. And though he removed all of the things that would disqualify us from being able to follow him through that place, we actually still are compelled to follow him through that place. That's still the invitation. You know, you want to talk about coming through the eye of a needle. The cross is a really, is a really, like that's a, that's a difficult eye of the needle to get pulled through. And in our culture, it's worth us thinking about and being challenged by because we are, we live with greater comfort and amenity most of us, even those of us who struggle financially, probably have fuller bellies than many of the kings who have lived throughout the ages. Like, we have a very comfortable life. And so to ask God to pull us through the, through the eye of the cross in this is going to be painful. So I'm just going to pray. Uh, I, 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 this is just, I'm just trying to open up a can of worms here, really, is kind of the point this morning. Just trying to open up a can of worms. Um, So Lord, you are inviting us into into eternal life, but you invite us into a, a difficult road. You invite us to the party and you mean it. But Lord, you, you, you put the crucified form of Jesus right in front of us. So God, we just want to open ourselves to your spirit to speak to us. God, that you would pull us out of our comfort-driven um, spirituality. I mean, God, we just, we love to worship you and we love all of the good things you do and we want to see the miracles and we thank you for the blessings and for all of that stuff. But Jesus, we just need to let it all go at the foot of the cross. I don't even know what that looks like, God. Teach us. Teach us how to let go of all of that crap at the foot of the cross and to just encounter you and to see the action of God And to be received and to receive in that place, Jesus. Let's gather around the table.